This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On June 2nd, 1985, a 24-year-old Hong Kong native was caught shoplifting a vice from a hardware store in South San Francisco. Before the police could arrive, however, he managed to escape and flee, leaving those working there to assume that would be the last they would hear of it. But that wouldn't be the case as it turned out, because later that afternoon, once the authorities had already arrived and were taking a statement, another man who gave the name Robin Scott Stapley arrived at the store saying he was a friend of the thief. He explained that he wanted to apologize for what had happened earlier and also to pay for the stolen vice. What he didn't realize at the time, though, was that his decision would lead to his downfall. When the police checked his ID, they realized he looked nothing like the man in the photo. And what's more, upon further investigation, the cops on the scene determined that the actual Robin Scott Stapley had been reported missing several weeks earlier. With them now suspicious, the mystery man was arrested and a further investigation was made. Chillingly, what they discovered after that would not only solve the case of Robin Scott Stapley's disappearance, but also the murders of at least a further 16 people. This is Monsters. The two men who had been to the hardware store on that day, both the thief and the liar, were indeed in cahoots. It was only through their combined efforts that they had ultimately been able to do as much damage as they had. Leonard Lake was born on October 29, 1945 in San Francisco, California. After the first six years of his life had been filled with a household full of people who always seemed to be arguing, his parents would finally decide to get divorced in 1951. Unfortunately for Leonard and his siblings, though, at this point, neither of their parents wanted the responsibility of looking after them. So instead, the kids were all sent over to their maternal grandmother's house where they spent the rest of their childhoods. While this might have at first glance appeared to be a far more stable environment, it was actually where the real problems began for Leonard. Despite being regarded as a pretty bright kid who could have had the world at his feet if he chose to apply himself, he understandably developed some abandonment issues during this time. Perhaps this was what led him to feeling a stronger connection to his sisters as he didn't want to lose them as well. The only problem with that, though, was that his connection to his sisters was a little too close by most people's standards, as he would often photograph them in the nude. In his defense, it wasn't as if his grandmother discouraged the behavior. No, for some reason, she actually chose to push her grandson to continue doing it. So with that, as he got deeper and deeper into the routine and the various things he could do with photography of the nude body, 
he began to develop an obsession with pornography as a whole. At a certain point, that would see him become less caring of his sisters as family members, with him instead seeing them as more of a tool to serve his interests. That was why, pretty soon, he was extorting them in order to get them to perform sexual acts on him too, as his obsession with porn only grew worse and worse. But incest wasn't the only dark interest Leonard was becoming focused on by the time his teenage years came around because he also developed a fascination with death and corpses. For him, this meant collecting mice, killing them, and then dissolving their bodies with chemicals as to see how they would react to the process. That's right, it was getting pretty intense by then, but this was only half of the story. The rest we'll get to in a few minutes. Across the Pacific Ocean, in British-controlled Hong Kong on Christmas Eve of 1960, Charles Ng, the youngest of three children and the only son of a wealthy business executive and his wife, was born. With this being a period of time when the country was still very much part of the British Empire, it meant there was always an English presence around the young boy while he was growing up. This made it easier for him to eventually move over to the United Kingdom as, after being arrested for shoplifting at the age of 15, his father sent him to Yorkshire, England. It was there that he was enrolled in Bentham Grammar School, a local boarding school in the area. For Charles, this was something of a relief. Now with the full continent separating him and his family, he didn't have to worry about his father's strict, authoritarian, and often outright abusive manner anymore. He also didn't have to worry about the fact that he'd already been expelled from multiple schools in Hong Kong. With him now having been given a clean slate, he was free to start from scratch in a whole new country. Sadly though, his emotional troubles would only end up following him over to the UK, and so, after a few months of being in Yorkshire, Charles once again found himself getting expelled, this time for stealing from other students. Needless to say, this did not make his father happy and when the young boy returned to Hong Kong, he would only grow more abusive. In his mind, this was the best way to knock his son into shape. Controlling children with violence doesn't usually work out so well though. One of the things Charles' father even considered at that point was trying to enlist his son into the military, but, as he was still too young to do so, that option was placed on the back burner for the time being. It was, however, an option for Leonard Lake as, back over the Pacific in San Francisco, he had graduated from Balboa High School. After that, he came to the decision that the best thing for him was to enlist in the United States Marine Corps. Given his fascination with some of the darker aspects of life, it only felt natural to put himself into a position where he was likely to see death every day. After all, it was 1964, so the U.S. was just about to enter the Vietnam War, a conflict where, rather than reigning victorious with ease as the United States government had boasted they would, the U.S. military would struggle to survive against the local populace and their more elemental battle methods. In what may have been a slight disappointment for Leonard, though, after enlisting and completing basic training, he would never get to directly involve himself in any face-to-face -face combat. Rather than being a frontline Marine, he instead served two tours out east as a radar electronics technician. It was also around that time that his psychological issues first came to the attention of those around him. 
Upon noticing his increasingly strange behavior while stationed in Da Nang, his superiors would order him to get a psych evaluation. Of course, during this evaluation, the state of his mental health was explored in full. While he didn't disclose to doctors all the details of his more taboo interests, what they learned was enough for them to diagnose him as suffering from schizoid personality disorder, a form of schizophrenia. After that diagnosis, Leonard was given a round of psychotherapy and, after he was still deemed unfit to serve, he was awarded a medical discharge from the Marines in 1971. With nowhere else to go, Leonard returned stateside where he settled in San Jose and hoped to get his life back on track by enrolling himself at San Jose State University. Unfortunately, though, his time at this institution would prove to be short-lived because... After becoming fully enamored with the hippie lifestyle and all the drugs and decadence which came along with it, Leonard dropped out of school and moved to a commune in San Francisco where he spent the next few years. At least initially, this proved to be a good decision. After all, not only did the positive atmosphere help to curb some of his more sadistic interests, but he also met a woman there who he quickly fell in love with. By 1975, the two were married. Of course, this marriage didn't last long. By now, Leonard's fascination with pornography had returned to the forefront, and at this point, it had grown to also include an interest in bondage and sadomasochism. Of course, it's important to note that there's nothing wrong with these things provided they take place between consenting adults, and I'm not suggesting that anyone who takes part in S&M somehow has a dark heart which is destined to lead them towards becoming a killer. No, far from it, in fact. In this instance, however, it did cause problems for Leonard's marriage as his wife was most certainly not a consenting party. And we can say this with certainty because, once she discovered the amateur pornographic movies her husband had been making and appearing in without her knowledge, she grew furious and immediately broke up with him as a result. With that, the San Francisco native would be forced to leave the commune where he'd been staying. Feeling like what they were offering could no longer quench his desires, he moved north to Calpella, about 120 miles or 190 kilometers north of San Francisco. There, he set up shop in a 5,600-acre ranch, which he was renting from the owner of the land. It was while there that he met a woman who was more in tune with his interests, a woman named Clarilyn Balage, or Cricket to her friends. In fact, so in tune would Cricket be with Leonard that the two quickly fell in love and got married. This time, the marriage would be more successful as Leonard didn't have to worry about hiding his sexual desires. No, he could be quite open about them with her as Cricket turned out to share many of the same fantasies. And if there were any he had which she didn't share, she was only too willing to indulge him in them anyway. Over the next few years, the two filmed and appeared in a number of pornographic movies together. But even if he was in a better relationship for what suited his needs at this point, it didn't change the fact that Leonard was still suffering from schizoid personality disorder. With him neglecting to seek any further treatment, it only meant that things would gradually get worse as time went on and his delusions were allowed to run wild. Come the late 1970s, for example, the continuation of the Cold War and the ever-existing threat of nuclear holocaust caused Leonard to become so paranoid about dying that he would begin construction of a secret bunker on the grounds of the ranch. 
This would carry on all the way up until the owner of the land discovered it and, not being happy with the damage done to his property, ordered Leonard to stop. While that did halt construction, it didn't do anything to halt the paranoia. No, that would only continue to get worse. While Leonard Lake was continuing to sink further into his mental health issues, back over in Hong Kong, the next stage of Charles Ng's journey would begin. For him, this meant leaving his homeland behind once more, and this time, instead of traveling to the UK, he was able to get a student visa to go to the United States. The reason he was able to do so was because he had gained entry to the College of Notre Dame in Belmont, California. There, he planned to study biology as he thought it might give him an avenue towards a good job in the future. In the end, however, as had happened before, his spell in education would prove to be short-lived. Soon after his enrollment, Charles would be involved in a hit-and-run accident. Realizing he was likely going to be prosecuted for his role in the crime, he chose to avoid a possible prison sentence by instead enlisting himself in the United States Marine Corps in October of 1979. That's right, just as Leonard Lake had done years prior, Charles Ng would also become a Marine. Of course, being a Hong Kong citizen, it meant he had to lie a little in order to do so, with him providing false documents to a recruitment officer that stated his birthplace as being Bloomington, Indiana. Even though he got away with the deception, like Leonard before him, Charles's time in the Marines would end abruptly. The reason for his discharge had nothing to do with the state of his mental health, though. Instead, his old ways of stealing from his peers would come back to haunt him after being caught taking automatic weapons from the Kaneohe Bay Base Armory without permission. Charles was arrested by military police and threatened with court-martial after less than one year as a Marine. Ultimately, Charles realized that this was going to be a far worse situation than the time he was merely kicked out of school and decided it would be best to just flee the area. After somehow escaping custody in early 1980, Charles made his way over to Northern California where he hoped he'd be able to hide out from any further repercussions. It was there that our two subjects would finally meet for the first time. Later that year, an ad placed in a survivalist magazine by Charles led to them coming into contact and quickly realizing that they had a lot in common. After all, they were both ex-Marines and both people who had come to share pretty extreme right-wing views of the government and the way they felt it should be run. Now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't Leonard live in a hippie commune at one point? It's true, but it appears that after leaving the commune in the late 70s, Leonard's political leanings had shifted towards the other side of the spectrum quite dramatically. This suited Charles just fine because he'd always considered himself to be right-wing, something he only felt more and more strongly about the older he got. Of course, politics wasn't the only thing they agreed about, though, as, just like the magazine they both read suggested, the two also had a shared fascination with survivalism. That would lead them to becoming close friends over the next couple of years. Each was able to indulge the other's fantasies about living off the grid and preparing themselves for the oncoming war they both worried might happen any day now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. While this war would never come, it wasn't like there weren't problems for Charles to deal with in the near future anyway. Only two years later, in 1982, the Marines would finally catch up to him in a mobile home he was sharing with Leonard in Ukiah, about ten minutes south of Calpella. When they found him there, they also found a treasure trove of weaponry which the two were stockpiling for defense, with this weaponry including a large stash of illegal firearms and explosives. The two were arrested, with Charles being taken under military custody specifically. As for his cohort, he ultimately escaped punishment when he posted bond to secure his release, then fled with his wife to a remote cabin in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, a mountain range running along the eastern border of the state of California. Authorities weren't too worried about Leonard because, despite being mentally unwell, his weapons had all been confiscated. The real target was Charles, and after years of trying to track him down, the Marines were more than happy to have him in their custody. With him unable to escape this time, they quickly put him on trial where he pleaded guilty to charges of theft and desertion. Following that, a plea deal meant he'd be sentenced to 18 months inside a military stockade at the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Once he served his time, he would finally be a free man once more, albeit one who now had a dishonorable discharge on his record. The only question left then was, now that he was free, what would he choose to do with his life next? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, he chose to track down his old friend Leonard Lake, with him quickly finding him still hiding out in the mountain ranges of Central California. By this point, Leonard had separated from his second wife. With him single once more and feeling like his sexual desires weren't being met while he was on the lam, he let Charles in on his plan to create the perfect woman for himself. What exactly did that mean? Well, basically it meant a woman who was 100% compliant with the male. Someone who was described by Leonard as an off-the-shelf lover who he could take out whenever he so desired, have her do whatever he wanted, then either put her back or throw her away once he was done. Along with Leonard's other dark desires, it turned out that he also held some pretty strong misogynistic opinions. To him, a woman was not meant to be heard. No, she was only meant to look good and be seen. Should she choose to get out of line and not understand her place in the world, then he would be all too happy to remind her of exactly who was boss. Perhaps in hindsight then, this explains his past poor relationships with women as, with two wives now having left him, we have to wonder if this didn't play a major role in the proceedings. Sure, his obsession with pornography had certainly been a big factor in at least his first marriage falling apart but breakups are rarely a result of one thing. If he had treated the women in his life the way he said he liked to, it's no surprise they would have cut ties with him eventually. There's also the possibility that his porn addiction may have helped contribute towards the attitudes he had. It's been suggested by some psychologists that watching too much pornography can not only warp your ideas of sex, but also of sexual partners. They may become viewed as objects for your pleasure rather than the human beings with their own thoughts and feelings that they are. If Charles had any issues with his friend's views on women, he certainly didn't show it. 
When Leonard informed him about his plans, he was all in, with him seeming very excited about the prospect. Perhaps this isn't too surprising either, though, given the extreme views that he held and the seeming lack of experience he had with the opposite sex prior to this. It only makes sense that he may have developed some warped attitudes towards women as well. So, with the two on the same page and now having all the time in the world to indulge in their whims together, they started working out a plan for how they were going to get this perfect woman within their grasp. The first step in this plan, as it happened, would be to buy a piece of remote property out in the Sierra Nevada mountains, build an underground bunker beneath it, and then set it up as their own personal rape dungeon. After that, they hoped to enact what they came to call Operation Miranda, a secret scheme between the two of them where they would go after women they liked the look of, who they referred to as Mirandas. They would kill the woman's partners and even their children if necessary, then drag them back to their dungeon in the mountains where they could take turns having their way with them. Luckily for them, and unfortunately for men, women, and children in Northern California, it didn't take long for the duo to find just the right property to meet these needs. It was located about 150 miles or 240 kilometers outside of San Francisco in Calaveras County. What made this property even more perfect was that, with it being driving distance from the big city, they'd have an easy time sourcing potential targets and then getting them back to their hideout unseen. What Charles didn't realize, at least initially, was that his accomplice had already been practicing his craft prior as it's now believed he killed at least two men before their murder shelter was ever completed. These two men were Donald Lake, Leonard's brother, and Charles Gunner, an old friend of his from some years back who had even served as the best man at his wedding. The obvious next question then is why did Leonard kill two people who were so close to him? Well, if we want some insight into that, we only have to look at the way the killer treated his sibling in the years prior. Despite Donald being described by most who knew him as a very nice and very gentle man, his relationship with his brother had not always been a good one. It was so bad at points, Leonard was known to refer to him as a leech and someone he had little time for. So it must have come as a surprise to his brother when, in December of 1982, Leonard appeared at his doorstep in San Francisco and asked him to come along with him on a road trip. As surprised as he might have been, he agreed to go along anyway, perhaps in the hopes that it would heal the relationship between the two. Not that there would be any healing done on this trip, however, because after a few days, the sibling's mother grew so worried about them not contacting her, she reported them as being missing. While Leonard was ultimately found on New Year's Day of 1983 renting a room in Golden Gate Park, his brother would never resurface. His whereabouts and eventual fate are still unconfirmed to this day. The police questioned Leonard at the time as they suspected he knew more than he was letting on, but he refused to give anything up. There were no grounds to charge him with an actual crime, and there was little that could be done other than hope the missing man would one day turn up again safe and sound. The exact same situation happened with Charles Gunner five months later. After Leonard had temporarily moved into his friend's home, he invited his host to go on a road trip with him. Needless to say, this trip went much the same as the one Leonard took with his brother. A couple of days later, 
Leonard returned to Charles Gunner's house to explain to his family that he had run off with another woman and would not be returning. From there, the missing man would never be seen or heard from again. And while it's possible Donald Lake is still alive out there somewhere, there isn't the same hope for Charles Gunner. Years later, his remains were unearthed near the dungeon on Leonard's property. None of that explains why these particular people were targeted, though. While we may never know the answer, we can at least speculate that by then, Leonard was already planning the construction of his dungeon, and so he wanted some targets to practice on. With these being two of the only people in the world who would trust him enough to follow him into such a situation, it made them ripe for the picking. With his appetite now being whetted and his new best friend all in on the plan, the two began a campaign of kidnapping, murder, and rape which continued on in secret over the next year. The duo's first targets were the Askren family. In April of 1984, not long after the construction of their abode was complete, they traveled to nearby Sunnyvale and set their sights on taking what they wanted. The details of what actually occurred are vague, and it's not clear if Leonard and Charles were able to get anyone back to their torture room. What is known is that, a few days later, Jeffrey Akron's car was discovered near Leonard's Calaveras County home. The pair would soon strike again when, in July of the same year, they broke into the house of 36-year-old San Francisco DJ Don Giuletti and his roommate Richard Carraza, then shot them both in cold blood. Of course, Leonard and Charles had likely hoped that when they entered the house, they would find a woman they could take back with them to have their way with. Unfortunately for them, though, both Don and Richard were gay, so having female partners was not something they were particularly interested in. Perhaps that's why they were shot then. No doubt feeling angry about their night not having gone as planned, the pair of killers emptied their guns before leaving. But while they would kill Don in the process, Richard managed to survive. When he was later asked to describe the person who shot him, he gave police the details of a small Chinese man wearing prescription glasses. Sadly, at that point, that wasn't enough to lead the cops to the door of Charles Eng. No, there just wasn't enough suspicion on him by that point, so investigators had no reason to connect the description to Charles. He managed to get a full-time job in a moving company located in the Bay Area soon after. That would give him plenty of opportunities to scout out more potential targets, with the next of them being the Dubs family who met their untimely fate on July 25th. A few weeks prior, Harvey Dubs had placed an ad in a local newspaper looking for someone to buy his old video equipment. Seeing this as a perfect opportunity, Leonard and Charles showed up at his house that afternoon only to also be met by his wife, Deborah, and their son, Sean. Where they went next remains unclear, but we do know that, after telling a friend she was speaking with on the phone at the time that she had to go because someone was at the door, Deborah and the rest of her family disappeared off the face of the earth. A neighbor noticed an Asian man leaving their property later with a box in his hand. The very next day, that same neighbor also noticed an unidentified vehicle driving away from their home. But while she tried to follow the vehicle, she ended up losing it in traffic. That likely meant that any opportunity there was to save the Dubs family had been firmly lost. Not that it would have been the end of their story yet, though, because later that day, a man identifying himself as Jim Bright called Harvey Dubs' employer and explained the family had moved to Washington. 
When the employer became suspicious and wanted to find out more about the man he was talking to, the call abruptly ended. It's very likely that by the time the call was made, Harvey and his one-year-old son Sean had already been killed. It's equally likely that, after that, Deborah was subjected to a potentially days-long horror session of rape and physical abuse, with her life eventually being snuffed out unceremoniously as well. Still, though, this wouldn't satiate the two killers' desires, and so, as the months went on, they continued in the same manner, always on the search for new victims. While sometimes this would lead to them finding a new woman to use for their sordid needs, other times things wouldn't go quite as planned, and rather than having a rape victim to take back home with them, they'd have to settle for a simple murder instead. That's what happened in October of 1984, when Randy Jacobson disappeared from his home in Haight-Ashbury not long after becoming involved in a business deal with Leonard. It's also what happened just one month later when, on November 2nd, a 40-year-old used car dealer in San Francisco named Paul Cosner disappeared along with the orange 1980 Honda Prelude he'd hoped to sell that evening. In fact, before he left home, he told his fiancée that he'd finally found a buyer for the car he'd been trying to get rid of for quite some time. So when he left to go meet the buyer, his fiancée thought nothing of it and instead went back to watching television. After an hour or two had passed and he hadn't returned, however, she began to grow concerned, especially since Paul was only supposed to be gone for a half an hour at most. When she thought back to what he had told her before he left, she grew even more concerned as she recalled him describing the buyer as being weird. After that, the police had no luck in finding Paul or Randy, just as they would have no luck finding Clifford Parent too either when he went missing on January 20th, 1985. In his case, though, there was a more direct connection with his killers as he'd been a co-worker of Charles's at the Dennis Moving Company in San Francisco. Given the fact that the two were often known to argue at work, it was easy to see why Charles would have targeted him. He likely felt like he wanted to take some revenge on him in the only way he knew how. Once again, though, this wasn't enough for police to consider Charles or Leonard to be a suspect. As the days and weeks went on and there remained no sign of Clifford, Charles continued to go about his business with no one being the wiser. In fact, so bold would he become at this point that just one month later he'd do the same thing again when another one of his co-workers, Jeff Gerald, went missing. To make matters even more blatant this time, the last anyone heard from him would be on February 24th when he told his family he was going over to Charles' house to help him move. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Even with this mounting evidence implicating at least one of the killers in the growing list of crimes, the authorities still didn't seem to take any particular interest in him. Hell, as far as they were concerned, there was no reason to believe any of these disappearances were connected at all. Of course, with hindsight being 2020, 
It's easy to see how they were wrong in this assumption, but with there being so many disappearances happening in the Bay Area at any given time, these just didn't stand out in the grand scheme of things. No, they'd only be a small piece of a much bigger problem the cops were regularly being forced to deal with. This meant that, when the next two disappearances happened on April 12th and April 19th, they would largely go unnoticed. Who were these two victims? They were Michael Carroll and Kathleen Allen, a young couple aged 23 and 18 respectively, who, having fallen on hard times, had taken to staying at a local motel in the San Francisco area. It was while they were living there on the evening of the former date that Michael informed his partner that he had to go out for a while and would return the next morning. Needless to say, he never did come back, and after a few days had passed, Kathleen received a surprise phone call while at work at a Safeway grocery store. On the call, an unidentified male voice told her that she had to come quickly as her boyfriend had been involved in a shooting. Panicking and wanting to make sure Michael was safe, she told her boss she had to leave and that she would be back as soon as she could. Quickly after that, though, she was seen in the parking lot talking to a bearded man, someone whose car she then got into. Them driving off marked the last time anyone ever would see her, too. Despite the best efforts of the authorities, no one was ever able to track her or her boyfriend down. For as bad as this was, it was nothing in comparison to the next disappearance, which later would become associated with Leonard and Charles. On April 19, 1985, at the same time they were convincing Kathleen Allen to get in the car with them, they had already set their sights on four more people. This group, which included 27-year-old Lonnie Bond, his partner 19-year-old Brenda O'Connor, their son, 2-year-old Lonnie Bond Jr., and their friend, 26-year-old Robin Scott Stapley, would all fall prey to the killers on that very same day. In their case, it wouldn't be a direct association with Charles, which led to their downfall, though. Instead, the Bonds would have the unfortunate distinction of living in the house next door to Leonard's main residence in San Francisco, and as it happened, they were no fans of Leonard's, with them often complaining prior to their disappearance that he was an extremely rude and obnoxious man. Part of the reason for that was that he was known to fire weapons on his property on a regular basis, something the family next door felt uncomfortable with, especially as they had a young child. On top of that, Leonard's obsession with pornography seems to have extended towards the Bonds too because at one point it was noted that he asked Brenda to pose nude for him, something she felt highly uncomfortable with. When he continued to ask her over the months which followed, despite her initial rejections, it was left for Lonnie to get involved and ensure Leonard left his girlfriend alone. He did understand how potentially unstable his neighbor was by then, though, and so, in order to keep himself safe, he brought his friend Robin Scott Stapley along for the confrontation. That ended up not keeping him safe, however, as following that date, the foursome were never seen alive again. While we can't say for certain it was this argument which sealed their fate, we can be fairly confident that it at least sped up the process of them becoming victims of two of the worst serial killers the state had seen in a long time. At this point, given how prolific and under the radar they were, there's no reason to believe the duo would have stopped anytime soon. After all, why would they? They were getting everything they ever wanted and they were getting away with it completely. 
Who knows how long the murder spree would have continued before the authorities finally put two and two together, potentially years or maybe even decades. With that in mind, it's lucky that Charles had one fatal Achilles heel in his personality and that was struggling with kleptomania. We've already talked about how the Hong Kong native's consistent need to steal things led him to getting into trouble at both school and while serving in the Marines. Thankfully, it would be the very same problem which stopped any further deaths from happening as, on June 2, 1985, the house of cards the two killers had been building would finally come tumbling down. On this date, Charles entered the South City Lumber Store in South San Francisco and proceeded to steal a $75 vice. What we didn't mention earlier, however, was that, before he fled the scene on foot, the thief threw the vice into the trunk of the 1980 Honda Prelude he had driven there. Why did he not choose to drive off instead of run away? That's unclear and we can only assume he panicked and made a poor decision in the moment. Either way, when the police eventually arrived a few minutes later, they were pointed towards that car where, after a quick search of the trunk, they discovered both the stolen vice and a 22 caliber pistol equipped with an illegal silencer. This makes the fact that Leonard appeared soon after make a lot more sense as he wasn't there to do a good deed and pay for the stolen item. He was there to try and get rid of evidence before the police could find it. Of course, it wasn't just the gun which served as evidence that something was amiss. It was also the fact that, as the police would soon discover, the car Charles had been driving was the very same one registered to Paul Costner, a local man who had been reported missing the prior November. As if that wasn't bad enough, the license plate on the car and the gun in the trunk were both registered to yet more missing persons, with these being Lonnie Bond and Robin Scott Stapley, respectively. But that still wasn't all because as Leonard was trying to explain that there had been a misunderstanding and that his friend had thought he had paid for the vice already, officers checked his identification and realized he bore no resemblance to the photo on it. What's more, the name on the ID belonged to none other than Robin Scott Stapley himself. So, with their suspicions now well and truly piqued, the police arrested Leonard on account of possessing an illegally modified weapon. Then, once they had him safely in their custody and unable to run away, they began the process of pressing him to try to get to the bottom of the situation. What happened next would chill them to their bones, though it wouldn't lead to any justice being brought down upon Leonard. The reason he escaped relatively scot-free is because, after admitting both his and his accomplices' real identities, he asked for a pencil, a piece of paper, and a glass of water. When the police brought him the items he had requested and gave him a few moments of privacy to write a note to his ex-wife, he swallowed a cyanide capsule he had hidden in his jacket. The poison immediately caused him to go into cardiac arrest. Despite the officer's attempts to save him by rushing him to nearby Kaiser Hospital, by the time Leonard arrived, it was clear that there was nothing they could do. That was why, after a couple of days of keeping him hanging on, he was eventually pronounced dead on June 6th. But while he might have been able to escape justice, that didn't mean the same was going to be the case for his accomplice because, with him having been named as a willing participant in whatever had happened, the search for Charles Ng would then begin. While they were looking for him, further information about the crimes in which he had been a party to would be uncovered when a utility bill in Leonard's ex-wife's name was found in his car, leading the authorities directly to her doorstep. 
Of course, she knew nothing about the property the bill was registered to, but she gave the police permission to search it anyway. When they entered the property, they found the dungeon set up that Leonard and Charles had worked so hard on building. On top of that, a further search of the grounds surrounding the house would see them discover a truck which belonged to Robin Scott Stapley, and a makeshift burial site where about 40 pounds of burned and crushed human bone fragments were uncovered. But that wasn't all because, on top of that, the bodies of Lonnie Bond and Robin Scott Stapley were located still intact inside the house. It was clear that they had been long dead by this point by means of gunshot wounds to the head. Near the bodies was what police later described as a hand-drawn treasure map, which quickly led them to two five-gallon buckets buried in the earth. One of them included an assortment of IDs and personal papers, enough to suggest the body count at the property may have been as high as 25. In the other was a collection of handwritten journals from Leonard Lake, and a series of videotapes which showed much of the torture which had taken place over the previous year. On one of the tapes, which was labeled M-Ladies, Brenda O'Connor could be seen crying as her shirt was cut open, only for Charles to then tell her, quote, you can cry and stuff like the rest of them, but it won't do any good. We're pretty cold-hearted, so to speak. In another, Kathy Allen was shown seated in a chair with Leonard warning her, quote, If you don't go along with us, we'll probably take you into the bed, tie you down, rape you, shoot you, and bury you. As if that wasn't bad enough. A third tape would show even more gruesome details as it depicted Deborah Dubbs being assaulted so severely that, as it would later be said in court, there was no way she could have survived. But that wasn't even the piece de resistance, because, in what turned out to be the piece of evidence which gave so much needed insight into why this terrible crime had taken place, investigators found a copy of John Fowle's novel, The Collector, next to a series of tools and handcuffs. That was an important find, as it was a book about a man who captured a woman named Miranda and keeps her as a slave in the hopes she'll eventually fall in love with him. In the end, it seemed as if their actions may have been done under the warped belief that these women were eventually going to stay with Leonard and Charles willingly. Of course, that was never going to happen though, and maybe it was when they finally realized that with each successive woman that they decided to kill them as they had done their family before. Whatever the case, the investigators now had more than enough evidence to charge Charles Ng with a whole cavalcade of crimes including kidnapping, rape, and murder. The only problem was they still hadn't been able to find him as he had then already left the country. After fleeing the lumberyard on the day of Leonard's arrest, he showed up at Cricket's house telling her that he needed a ride to the airport. With her having no reason to suspect he'd done anything wrong at that point, she drove him there happily, only for her to later be informed by the police how poor of a decision it had been in hindsight. But how could she have known? From there, Charles made his way to Canada and was able to successfully hide out until December of that year, at which point his kleptomania came back to bite him. That's right, after being arrested by the Calgary Police Service when he shot a security guard in the hand while being chased for stealing a can of salmon, Charles was convicted of shoplifting and assault with a deadly weapon. Just in case you didn't hear me, he was stealing a can of salmon. While he was serving his sentence for that crime, again, one that was rooted in him stealing a can of salmon, 
word got back to San Francisco and they began making plans to extradite him back to the U.S. Of course, Charles fought these attempts as he knew that being sent back to America would see him become eligible for the death penalty. When his extradition was eventually approved, his heart must have sunk as he knew exactly what was to come. Despite his pleas that the whole thing had been Leonard's plan and that he'd only been going along with it to keep him happy, the wealth of evidence against him meant it wouldn't take long before the jury found him guilty on 11 out of 12 counts of first-degree murder. Following that, the judge sentenced him to death. He took particular care to note Charles's culpability in stating, quote, Mr. Ng was not under any duress, nor does the evidence support that he was under the domination of Leonard Lake. That's how things remain to this day, with Charles Ng on death row at San Quentin State Prison patiently waiting for his execution. But why the holdup? Well, as it happens, the state of California has not carried out any execution since 2006, and it's possible they'll never carry out another one. In 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an executive order placing a moratorium on the death penalty in California. In the end, despite all the pain and death he caused, Charles might get away without having to pay the ultimate price himself. Whatever happens, though, he'll undoubtedly spend the rest of his life behind bars. And even if this won't bring back the people he and Leonard Lake worked together to brutalize, it does at least mean that no further victims of these two monsters will be added to their body count going forward. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.